You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, Bluffing, Part 4, The End of the Story. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week? It's going well, BJ. It's going well. Um... You know, I've I've been struggling with endurance here, still trying to get feeling better. Thought I was good last week, but I went back to work and found out uh, my endurance just isn't what it was. So uh, struggling through that, but, uh, you know, getting a little better every day. And uh, I just started taking a new course on being a life coach, and I'm pretty excited about that. So things are going pretty good. How about for you? Well, 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 tell us more about this life coach thing. Let's stick on you for a while here. So right, what's man. what's this deal about being a life coach? Sounds pretty awesome. Well, I, I'm going to be honest. I feel like that I've spent like the last couple of decades of my life working on being a better human being. So the thing is, is like, it's a slow, painful progress. I haven't made as much progress as I'd like. I'm still not perfect. But doing that, always trying to be changing and moving forward emotionally, spiritually. And I've gotten to this point where I just feel like I've been working towards getting to the point where I want to help other people achieve their goals and their dreams. I figured the first step for that would be to take a course in being a life coach. And I'll be honest, I think I'm probably going to start out being a poker life coach, and then I'm going to expand into the rest of the uh, life coaching realm. That sounds awesome. Well, best of luck to you on that journey. So you had asked how my week was going. It's going pretty well. I convinced my family that I can duck out of work early on Thursdays and squeeze another poker session in. So now I can play Thursday, Friday, and either Saturday or Sunday. I can't do both because I still need to have time with the family, but I can still play Thursday and get home in time for dinner. That's awesome. I just got back a few hours ago from Virginia. We went to visit my father and my aunt over the weekend. Hadn't seen my aunt in about a year because of this whole prolonged COVID thing. And we saw my father again. So that was a great time. It was too cold in Virginia to golf, but we did go for some nice walks in a park, hang out around the house. I learned how to play Mexican train in dominoes. Pretty fun game. I had never played it before. Fun game. Had a great time with the family. Fun fact, my father made an observation and we made fun of him for this. And then we had to apologize later. I know he listens to the podcast, so he will appreciate the apology on the air. He shared with us, did you ever notice that when the wind blows really hard, the water in the toilet bowl actually moves? It makes waves? And we laughed our butts off. We're like, there's no, there's no way this is true. This is, this is hogwash. And then I Googled it, and I found multiple sources that confirmed it. It turns out that when there are strong gusts of wind, it will decrease the air pressure in the sewer pipes. And that decreased air pressure will cause enough volatility in the water levels to make waves, if you're paying attention. They're not tsunami waves in the toilet bowl. Don't worry, you're not going to get a Sharknado. But it did make waves. So, fun fact. I want you to know, if anybody had told me that our show was going to end up in the toilet anytime, I would have assumed it would have been because something you or I did. Wow, wow. <laughs> well, well, you know what? There is no better way to make your poker game go in the toilet than by failing to execute a bluff, by bluffing inappropriately, not knowing how to do it. I can't tell you how much money I've thrown away by doing dumb bluffs. I'm sure other people have too. 
This is going to be the last of a four-part series on bluffing, and we're finally getting to the turn in the river. This here's the thing that's interesting, because we're going to be talking about the turn in the river, yet we're still going to be talking about the flop, you know, a little bit here, because, you know, we, we were talking before we came on, and everything we're doing on the turn in the river has been dictated by the actions that happened on the flop. You know, when we're looking at this, there's a little bit of difference. We, we put the turn and river together because there's a lot of similarities. The real big difference is when you're on the turn, your hand still has some equity usually. There's going to be times when you're drawing dead and it has zero equity, but it usually has some equity. On the river, if you're going to bluff, you don't have any equity. The only equity you have is fold equity. Your hand itself doesn't have any equity. We put them together. That's the major difference between the turn and the river. There's other little differences, but when we're talking about this and we're looking at bluffing the turn or the river, we need to start thinking about, we've gotten to the turn, we have some problems that happen, we get pro players that they get to the turn without a plan. And this should have never happened because we were supposed to make that plan on the flop, right? How do we make that plan for the turn, right? Well, that's when we, on the flop, and we're going to make a bet and we get called we should know when we get called what the plan is for the turn. Hey, there's two hearts on the board, but I got the ace of hearts. If another heart comes out, that's a good bluff candidate for me. I'm blocking paint. If a paint comes out, maybe is a good bluff candidate for me. So we're already starting to think about blockers. We're already starting to anti-blockers come in, and we'll talk about them in a moment. There was some question beforehand just how much credence we wanted to give blockers and anti-blockers, and we're going to talk about that a little later. On the turn, we're facing these problems, right? We're facing the problem of not having a plan. We generally have a couple options if we don't have a hand made, right? We have bluffing and we have surrender. So we're going to have to try and figure out which of those lines we're going to take. And the thing is, I think a lot of people have a problem with surrendering, and sometimes it's the right move. If you have a highly coordinated board and you are the pre-flop aggressor and you're more likely to be at the top of your range. You don't have enough board coverage in your range to match the board that is on the, the table. It's okay to surrender. It's okay to say, okay, I'm going to check this. And if it checks down, great. And if I get bet, I'm, I'm ready to fold. Like this need to not fold, this concern with, I, I, well, if I check, I'm going to have to fold. Folding is not always the worst option. And when we're bluffing, we want to be looking at it, and it's like, okay, how does this board help my range? Did it add equity to my range, or did it detract equity from my range? If it added equity to your range, and, and you'll notice, I'm not talking about your specific hand. If it added equity to your range, this is a good bluffing candidate to continue with. And you should know what those cards are going to be. And it doesn't need to be specific cards. It can be groups. Like if a paint card comes out, I'm going to be bluffing here. If another heart comes out, I'm going to be bluffing here. If another card that connects to top of range comes out, I'm going to be bluffing. If an ace comes out, because they know I have all the top strong aces, those are the things you want to be thinking about when you're starting to plan on the flop for the turn. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I've fallen into a lot of those traps in my poker career. I still do sometimes. We're not perfect. When it comes to bluffing, and you either surrender or you bluff, I, not in the too far distant past, I would have continued hammering the aggression with bluffs because I wanted to force my opponent to fold. I wasn't taking into consideration how I got there, how my opponent got there. 
my opponent could very well have hit the flop and they're never going to fold. And now I'm just stacking off to them. I might be surrendering inappropriately because my opponent is overfolding and I'm not paying attention to that. I might be bluffing when they're overcalling and I'm not paying attention to that. Regardless of whether the opponent overcalls or overfolds, if we don't have an idea of what our opponent's range looks like when they got to the flop and got to the turn, we could get ourselves in trouble by not taking the right lines because we're not paying attention to what they have and how their range interacts with that board texture. And the challenge is trying to figure out which is the most EV play. And yes, sometimes folding is the most EV play. The thing to understand with what you just said there is zero EV is still better than negative EV. Yeah, yeah. Folding is always a zero EV play. You're not going to lose any more money by folding. Another problem we got when we talk about the turn in the river is the how did I get here problem. It's very similar to what we just said, but it happens because people don't have a plan. But it, it happens because people don't understand how their range plays going forward. So they end up bluffing with hands that they shouldn't have, that portions of the range that they shouldn't have. So they end up on the river wondering, how the heck did I get here? And how do I get out of this? And then they're stuck with a problem of oftentimes bluffing in a situation where they don't really have a good story. They don't have any blockers. They don't have, they do have anti-blockers. So the combination of a bad story and not having any blockers and having those anti-blockers in, you know, you just get set up to where you're most likely going to fail. So can you talk a little bit more about those anti-blockers and those blockers and to what extent we should give credence to those? Because you had mentioned earlier in the episode that we'll talk about that. And I think, honestly, I'm going to say, I think I put too much emphasis on blockers and anti-blockers and I probably shouldn't. I should probably focus on other details. We've told a story, like we've told a story, if it's a good story and we can look at it and say that I have top of range pre-flop and then we go into the turn and we've had a flop and it was a static flop and yeah, we've missed it, but our opponent doesn't know we missed it and we can claim top of that and on the turn, maybe the board becomes a little more connected, but it's not so bad that we can't continue with our aggression and then we get to the river and we're looking at it. What's more important here? Is our opponent a draw chaser? Are they likely to chase a draw and the draws didn't hit and we can take in with one more bet, win the pot? Or is it more important that we have blockers or anti-blockers? And I'm going to say that the story is more important. All right. I think that blockers really start to hold more meaning. The closer we are in, in a decision for bluffing, the more those blockers matter. So let me see if I can really say what define what I'm trying to say. So blockers and anti-blockers matter more when we have an opponent that is going to bluff catch more often. They matter more when we have an opponent that is going to have something when they get to that river. So when we have blockers, we can be blocking the nuts a lot. For example, if we've got three hearts on the board and we have ace of hearts, seven of diamonds, we blocked the nut flush. So if we have an opponent that can fold a smaller flush, or if we have an opponent that is going to be flush scared and that last card came in, then yeah, we have a blocker that matters a lot there. So I'm never going to say it doesn't matter. The thing that happens is this. For example, if we have ace-king, there's a 50% less chance that our opponent can have aces, right? 
everybody should know that. I mean, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you should know that information. It should be pretty, it's not new information. The thing is, is that people think that that's a tremendous amount. And it is, it's just 50% less. Except that when you take that in the context of 52 cards, there wasn't that much chance of them having aces to begin with. So how much effect did it have? Well, it had some. And it's not that it's not important. It's just a matter of don't tie all your hopes and dreams on winning that bluff to the fact that you have a blocker. It, it's, it's one of those things that's part of the decision-making process, but it should not be the be-all, end-all. And when we're talking about what's an anti-blocker, it's not really difficult to define what we mean by blockers and anti-blockers. We want blockers in our hand, and a blocker is a card that blocks a hand that would call our bluff. So if we got ace-queen of hearts and there's an ace on the river there, well, aces are probably going to call our bluff. You know, any ace at that river that's gotten to that point is going to call our bluff, right? The fact that we have it in our hand means there's less likely a chance they have it. You know, and with the what we don't want in our hand is anything that blocks a hand that's going to fold. So if we got an ace-high board, a queen's going to call our bluff there? Maybe, but, you know, if we have a queen, well, you know, they don't have queens. So say they would fold queens. We don't want any queens in our hand. So that same ace-queen hand, sure, we blocked their ace, but we also blocked their queens that would fold. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And to put it in context of actual numbers, when you were saying, if we have ace-king, we decrease the likelihood that our opponent has pocket aces by 50%, you're only going to get dealt pocket aces one out of every 221 times, or about 0.5%. So we just decreased by 50% the chances that they have aces, but it's really only from 0.5 to 0.25. In the grand scheme of things, that's not a massive change. It's like your daily newspaper went up a quarter. Yeah, but it only costs 75% to begin with. Oh my goodness, that's like a 33% increase. Yeah, but it's a quarter. The actual numbers matter more than the percentage difference. And it's kind of interesting. So I get your point where blockers and anti-blockers make sense. And we need to put that in the context of all the factors that come to our decisions of whether to bluff or not. And it might not really be the factor that tips us to bluffing or not. It's not like you're going to say, I have all these factors to consider oh, but wait, I have exhibit A. I have this blocker. Well, case closed. I'm going to bluff. It's not going to be like that. There are so many other more factors you need to consider in terms of the story of the hand. Don't ignore it, but just take it into consideration. Does that make sense? Is that pretty much it? Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely it. In matter of fact, I think that's one of the biggest problems with bluffing. And we didn't even put this in our notes, but now that we're on this, this path, I got to say one of the biggest problems with bluffing for most people is they take one piece of information or maybe this information over here and and but they they don't take all the information together so when we really look at this what we're looking at we need to tell a good story it has to be believable our range has to have a possibility of hitting the board in some fashion and if we continue that bluff it has to be because we can say Yep, you may have hit that board, but our range hits it better, and we did hit it better. A lot of this goes to player profile. Is my opponent capable of folding 
a given set of hands that I want them to fold. Nobody should be folding the nuts. If your opponent folds the nuts, then you're you're all, you're golden. You can bluff 100% of the time all the time. But there's going to be hands. Even the most sticky player still has hands that they will fold. So you need to understand your opponent and what hands they'll fold. Well, when we first sit down at the table, we don't have that, right? All we have is player tendencies, right? So like when we look at this, we sit down. Players nowadays don't fold to C-bets as much as they used to. They still fold. They The thing is, people still overfold the C-bets, but they don't fold as much as they used to. So sometimes we got to carry that C-bet mentality into the turn and continuation bet on the turn to get the same results we used to get 10 years ago. Because people have been told you need to be stickier. And they still overfold. And they're still going to overfold the turn. There are some players that are not calling you unless they have something. Well, if they have something, is there anything they can have that they will let go of on the turn or the river? And if so, what bet side? And if so, what do you have to say with what's going on? You know, what what, what does your bet side say to that opponent on the turn and then on the river that you can get them to fold? Does Do blockers matter? Yes, they're a part of the story. I know you can't have the nut flush because I got it. You can say that if you've got the, the ace of hearts and, and it's a heart flush, you know, or ace of spades or whatever your particular favorite suit is, you get to say that. Now, will they fold? Maybe, but you at least get to say, I know you don't have the nuts. Do you, do you dare call me here? So blockers do matter. It's not that they're not important, but they should be part of the whole story. I really want to emphasize the part that you mentioned that you need to consider the entire story. I have been caught more times than I would like to admit playing against a player that I would openly say is bad. They're a terrible player. I don't like they it when you talk about me that way. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not you. I mean, no. So, uh, wow, you, you got me off track here. So I have been caught more often than I would like to admit playing against a player I would openly consider bad because I know they overcall on the flop. I know they overcall on the turn. And I know they fold to so many river bets. They totally overfold on the river. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, I know this player profile. I'm going to bet, 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 and they're going to call, call, fold. Ignoring the fact that bad players are also allowed to get good hands every now and then. It's not a rule that they can't get good hands just because they're a bad player. And I ignored the fact that my bet, bet, bet narrowed their range and funneled them to the top of their range. So when we got to the river, there is no possible universe where I'm not beat because I forced them to stay in with the best of their range. So here I am considering only their player profile. Here's a bad player. They're going to fold to a river bet. And here I am ignoring the fact that I constricted their range to the top of it that crushes me. So of course they're not going to fold. I mean, that's a cautionary tale. What we're saying is we need to factor the entire story. It's not, it's, it's all connected. The pre-flop ranges, how that range carries through the flop, how that range carries to the turn, how our blockers and anti-blockers affect what we could do on the turn and the river. And that even gets to bet sizing. And now that we get to the river, we can talk about things like minimum defense frequency because there's no further street. There's no implied odds. What you see is what you get. And depending on your bet size, your opponent would need to defend a certain amount 
And if they're failing to defend that certain amount, you auto profit. And I don't want to get into the details here. We can put a formula in our show notes and we can give some examples in our show notes for that. But I mean, this is, it all comes together. You can't think of all, you can't think of any of these factors in a vacuum. You have to consider it holistically. And that's what makes this game so complex. I, you know, on the minimum defense frequency, I think that the, the one thing I want to say about that is that it's important to understand that our sizing manipulates our opponent's minimum defense frequency. This is really about, it's about two things. I, I put in the notes that it's really about thinking players, but it's actually about non-thinking players too. All right. It really is. But we're going to address the thinking players first. A thinking player is going to be aware of minimum defense frequency. That may not actually be 100% true. A learned player, a studied player is going to be aware of minimum defense frequency. When facing that player, we have to understand that we can manipulate how often they call us. We really can. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. So what happens? We get these, they, they bet, they bet, they get to the river and they down bet. And down betting isn't always wrong. And there's sometimes it will work as a bluff. But a lot of times what you just did when you down bet on the river is you just increase the frequency of which your opponent needs to call to be correct. We can decrease the number of times that their calling is correct by raising our bet side. Do we want to go crazy? No, we don't. Because if we go crazy, it needs to look just like a value polarized bet. It's what it needs to look like. We're telling them we've got them beat, and it should look like the same bet as though it were top of range. And that's against that particular type of player. You're going to get some people that you're going to be able to understand that they're never going to understand minimum defense frequency. And this all goes back to the overfolding and overcalling scenario. And if you notice in your opponent that a particular size is the point where they start to overfold, well, now you've got that point where you can own them on the river with your bluffs. And with that particular player, it doesn't have to look the same as, as your, your value bet because they're not paying enough attention anyways. So you can get your value by betting smaller and you can get your bluffs through by betting bigger. People will always say, well, somebody at the table is going to notice that. Well, you're not playing every player at the table the same. And if you are, you're making a mistake. And it's another way people fail when they bluff is they bluff the same no matter who the opponent is. Well, the reality is, is if you have a, a full ring table, then you have nine different personalities at that table. You have nine different ways poker is being played. Will they be similar? Yes, but none of them are going to be exactly the same. So you shouldn't play any of them the same. So who cares if somebody sees that you adjust your bet size for a given player? Who cares if somebody sees that you adjust your bet size for a given player to make a bluff work if that's the only player at the table you're doing it with? I think we have two assumptions there. The first assumption is that at least one person is actually paying attention. The second assumption is that the person that is paying attention can actually adjust to what you're doing. And those are two assumptions that I would put good money on that most people don't do. Yeah, I mean, you might even have some player that does notice this. They notice that Dell is bluffing a certain way against a certain player. And then they're going to see Dell take an action against them it's going to be a different action because like Dell said, he's not going to play against two players in the same way. So even if that player notices that Dell is bluffing player A in a certain way, that player is going to assume that Dell will bluff them in that same way. 
and Dell's not going to. So even there, I don't think those two assumptions are going to hold. I think by and large, most players, when they put this into practice and they tailor their bluff strategies to individual player profiles and those personalities, you're not going to get found out. And if you do get found out, they're not going to be able to adjust to you. And if they do try to adjust to you, they're going to adjust in a wrong way. And when they adjust in the wrong way, they're going to adjust in a wrong way that you will be able to exploit even more. So I think that you have some notes here on if you get caught bluffing in, I think that they're very important. Um, I'm going to let you share that. So one of the tools that we'd like to provide is something that I mentioned in last week's episode, and that is that starting Monday, all right, so this episode is going to come out on Thursday. So I will have been doing this for four days already. You can follow us on our YouTube channel. Just search for The Blind Stealing the Blinds. And I'm going to be posting a video each day where I look at a flop and I look at a contrived scenario between me and an opponent in different positions with different assumed ranges. And we're going to figure out what makes good bluffing candidates. We're going to look at what lines to take across each street. Do we check call, see bet, check raise, check fold? By the way, don't check fold your value hands. Don't do that. Pro tip. But we're going to walk through the exercise to show everybody how to go about figuring their value hands and their bluffing hands, or what I called last week, our fake value hands. And the fact is, if you get caught, that's fine. We should not expect our bluffs to get through 100% of the time. If we get our bluffs through all the time, we're not bluffing enough. The whole thing with minimum defense frequency is that the opponent ought to be defending. If they're not defending, that means we never get found out. But if we're bluffing often enough with that right frequency, yes, they are going to call us down. They're going to look us up. They're going to find us out and we will be wrong. We'll lose a hand. That's okay. Don't get upset if your bluff gets called. We don't have to get all of our bluffs through. We just need to get enough of our bluffs through to be profitable. And that's the minimum defense frequency. If I bet a certain amount such that my opponent needs to defend 50% of the time, but they fold 75%, I'm auto-profiting. That still means they're going to call me 25% of the time. I will get found out. It's not the end of the world. Just like folding isn't going to take your birthday away, losing a pot is not going to make your spouse leave you, not going to make your kids run away from home. It's going to be fine. I think that one of the things that happens in the psyche, the human psyche, is that we're playing at the poker table and we make a bluff we feel like we've told a good story and we get called and we get called by second or third pair. And we think I screwed up. I made a mistake. No, that, that, that's not what it means. All right. It may mean that. I mean, we want to take a look at it. It is possible we made a mistake, but it's also possible we did everything right. And oh, by the way, this guy can't let go of a pair. We've learned a lesson here. We've learned a lesson here and we're going to go forward. And we're going to be able to play this player better but moving forward. One. And two, everybody else at the table just saw that, you know. And, you know, it's one of those things. We say they're not really paying attention. They're not really paying attention. When we say that, they're not really paying attention to the right stuff. But they'll pay attention to the fact that you bluffed with air and, and got looked up by third pair. Every bluff that gets caught is just more value for top of range for you. It's not something to be upset about. Our bluffs protect our value. Our value protects our bluffs. They got to go together. And 
the overall expected value is higher when we're doing them right. Does that mean we always win? No, sometimes we lose. How often do we think we're betting for value and it turns out we only had the second best hand? It happens. Does that mean we made a mistake betting for value? No. That's an excellent point. That's great. I, I can't think of anything else to add on that. I mean, I do have an anecdote from this weekend to illustrate that. I did a triple barrel bluff that I was confident would work. And this elderly gentleman called me with third pair and he won. The rest of the table was in awe of this quote unquote hero call. And I paid attention to what he did. And within an orbit, I stacked him. So not only did I get all of my money back, but I got all the money that he took from other people in those intervening hands. So it reminds me of a Willie Jolly quote, who was a motivational speaker, I don't know, early 2000s, whatever. A setback is a setup for a comeback. So there you go. Don't be discouraged if your bluffs don't get through. Learn from it, adjust, and keep moving forward. So I don't, I don't really have anything else to add on bluffing here. Um, I hope that the people who listen to this, I, I hope that they're bluffing more, and I hope they're bluffing more effectively. And uh, yeah, I, I'm happy that we did this series, and I'm looking forward to uh, next week when we're going to have a special guest. We're not going to mention her name, but I know that BJ and I are both looking forward to it. Yeah, this was a great series. I'm excited because we had an earlier series on betting, when to bet, how to bet, where to bet, all that stuff. And now we've addressed the flip side of that coin, a four-part series on bluffing. Those seven or eight episodes combined, there's a lot of stuff in there. And I am really tempted to go back into our archive and listen to what we said on betting to see how it jives with what we're saying now on bluffing, because the two of those combined is a powerful tool that I hope our listeners take advantage of and start crushing their tables. So yeah, I can't think of anything else to add. So thanks a lot, Del, for joining me. It's been awesome, BJ. I always enjoy this. Thank you. All right. And until next week, stick to the plan and may all your variants be positive. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours.